Hello and welcome to Holistic Health Chats, a podcast where we chat about all things holistic women's health and everything in between. I'm your host, Selene Douglas, a women's health nutritionist with a focus on helping women to heal holistically and live pain and symptom free. I'm so happy that you've made your way here. Tune in every week so we can listen, learn and be inspired together. In today's episode of Holistic Health Chats, we are doing things a little differently. Alex from Nutrition Moderation is going to be interviewing me on the role nutrition plays in preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum, as well as how to prepare for each of these stages. This is a topic that I am extremely passionate about because in clinic, I see so many holes in our current standard of care. And it's an area of women's health that desperately needs to be addressed so that women can prepare for pregnancy, feel confident in that, and optimize both the health of themselves and of their baby, as well as improve their postpartum health outcomes and, of course, reducing their risk of things like postpartum anxiety and depression. Let's dive in. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to have you on to talk everything preconception and postpartum nutrition. So let's start off. I'm thinking we'll just dive right into why nutrition is important for preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum. Yes. Well, I think, you know, nutrition is important in whatever sort of stage of your life you're at. But of course, we know preconception, you are really setting the scene for passing on Uh, nutrients health to your growing baby and I think I'm not sure I can't speak of course for Canada but certainly here in Australia there's a really uh, sort of there's a lack around preconception care and emphasizing uh, the steps that women are actually taking to improve their health preconception and I think the flow-on effect of that is that of course it doesn't set women up for The best outcomes in pregnancy, if we think about something like iron, which we can get into later, it's very common for women to be uh, deficient by the time they get to trimester three. And, you know, I often think if there was more of a conversation around this uh, preconception, what sort of deficiencies and things could we be avoiding? Can we actually be uh, mitigating a lot of the, the women that are ending up getting infusions in that third trimester? And then I think if we carry that through to postpartum health, I know that uh, a lot of women do experience postnatal anxiety and postnatal depression, and I know they're very multifactorial. We, of course, can't just blame that on uh, nutritional reasons because there are a lot of adjustments hormonally and lifestyle-wise that women are going through in that postnatal phase. But if we think about a lot of the nutrients that women are often deficient in in that postnatal phase, they're also those same nutrients that we really need to maintain our mental health and uh, decrease anxiety. So I often think, you know, if we were setting women up a bit better in that preconception phase and had a bit more time to work on overall health nutrient status, I mean, how much of that postnatal anxiety or depression could we either be avoiding altogether or at least greatly reducing Mm -hmm. that's perfect I love what you said 
to basically set you up and also to avoid any deficiencies and any of the anxiety and depression. And like you said, a lot goes into that, but nutrition plays a huge role. Nutrition is the foundation to everything. And not only nourishing mom, but also nourishing baby is super important. So in knowing all that, and if someone's looking to um, try or conceive and they want to avoid any nutritional deficiencies, I have two questions. So we'll, <laughs> we'll kind of split them up, but sure. I'm curious, so how long before trying to conceive should women be thinking about this preconception care? And how would you define preconception care? What does that entail? Yeah, so I think, you know, everyone's everyone's timeline is going to look really different. And of course, it's not necessarily our place as nutritionists to try and change anyone's preconception timeline. Um, however, I think the timeline is really going to depend on your state of health and a few things to throw in there that you won't necessarily know until you do further testing. Say, you know, we know um, a lot of women do develop um, postpartum thyroiditis and I often think, you know, they probably have those slightly elevated thyroid antibodies well before pregnancy because we know that thyroid antibodies really can be elevated for up to 10 years before someone will go on to develop a thyroid condition. And so these things are probably going on before they've actually conceived. And then, of course, the hormonal changes and the stresses postpartum um, allow that that thyroiditis to, to develop um, and, and they become symptomatic. So in those kind of people, I think, you know, if your health isn't optimal, which you might not know unless you're looking into it, then you want to allow, I'm going to say around 12 months, which I know it sounds like a long time, but you don't want to be stressed about trying to improve your health, which is really sort of opposite to what we're trying to achieve. However, if you are overall really healthy, I think at least three months is a good place to start. And the reason I say three months is the minimum is because we know the woman's eggs are going to take uh, 88 days. Uh, they have that 88 day life cycle, the follicles do, which will then, you know, go on to become the egg. Uh, and so positive or negative, any changes that you're starting to implement really do take about 90 days. So around three months to actually see that flow on effect. And I think another thing to mention here, you know, we're focusing a lot on the female's health preconception, but conceiving is obviously a 50-50 job. And I mm -hmm. think all too often what I see in clinic especially is all of the onus is put on the woman in the preconception phase to tidy up her health, you know, do all of those things. And no one's really involving the partner. I mean, of course, there are exceptions to that, but I think it's really important from a sort of um, – psychosocial point of view for it to be a a two-person job and for that man to that partner to be involved as well in the preconception phase so I just always like to mention that and encourage any women out there who are wanting to embark on doing some thorough preconception care that you know you have that conversation with your partner and ensure that they're on the same page as you I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. I completely agree that's <laughs> 
That's a fact that's out there. Um, I once did a, a research project while I was in school and it was on infertility and all the statistics. And it's true. A lot of the onus is put on the women, but the mm. statistics show it's actually 50-50. And so I do find it's important if you are looking to conceive that both part both partners should show up and both partners should clean up their nutrition and lifestyle, take some supplements. And I just agree with everything you said there. And going back to the 12 months to prepare. So mm. a lot of my clients that listen to the podcast or um, see me in practice are looking to come off the birth control pill. Mm. So would you recommend that same 12 month window for someone looking to come off the pill and get pregnant? Or would you recommend a bit more time for healing? You know, I think it depends. We do sometimes, I'm not sure if, if you see this, sometimes I, um, I call them the, the unicorns, the female <laughs> unicorns that come off the oral contraception. Their health is great. They get a cycle back. It's, they're ovulating every month and it's bang on, no symptoms. I mean, that's the, really the rarity. It's not what we see a lot, but there are those women that we see in clinic. And so I think for those women, potentially a shorter time frame, still with that three-month minimum, but certainly three to six months is is potentially okay. However, uh, that, as I said, is certainly not the norm that we see. And I think also a lot of women are prescribed the oral contraceptive pill for symptomatic reasons, um, being that they have an underlying hormone imbalance. And unfortunately, when they're going to seek help often about that um, via a general practitioner or a doctor unfortunately the sort of blanket approach has just been you know take the oral contraceptive because it'll um, sort of quote-unquote regulate your cycle Um, though of course we know it certainly doesn't regulate your cycle you're just basically putting a band-aid over your hormonal problems so I think what we see a lot of in clinic is women coming off birth control and then a lot of those original symptoms can resurface Uh, and for those women I think certainly you need to uh, have an understanding that that is a potential and that possibly you'll come off and things will be great but it might take a bit more work you might need to really look at uh, working on your liver working on your gut Uh, definitely cleaning up your nutrition and also improving a lot of those nutrients that we know the pill depletes. Uh, A lot of those same nutrients are really important for you preconception during pregnancy and certainly to ovulate properly, to have energy levels, all of that kind of thing. So it's really multifactorial, I think. Mm -hmm. I completely agree is getting to the root cause, seeing what's coming up and then working on healing that before you try any pregnancy, because it'll just be that much easier than for the body in order to conceive. And so on the topic of preconception, what should we be doing for preconception care? So if a woman comes to you and is like, okay, I'm trying to get pregnant, where should I start? What should I do first? So walk us through that. For sure. So I saw this great meme on, I don't know who posted it, but it was on Instagram and it was, you know, one of those ones with the line down the middle and on one side it had what most people think they should be doing in the preconception phase and the three things were take a prenatal, have sex and stop drinking. <laughs> the three things. And then on the other side it had all the things that we're, we're going to go through. Um, and I think 
it's just, yeah, it's just so true. We don't have enough awareness around that. And the, as I was sort of thinking about this and, and what I do with my clients, the first thing is I really just get them to understand their menstrual cycle because you would be so surprised the amount of women that don't know what is day one of their cycle, don't know how to tell if they're ovulating or mm-hmm. they tell me when I ask, so, okay, good, you know, when you're ovulating, what day of the month are you generally ovulating on? And they say, oh, my app just tells me that I ovulate on day 14. Yeah. Like, okay. So what app are you using and and how are you actually tracking that? And then, you know, it's not that they're tracking with temperature or symptoms. It's just literally that they're inputting when they get a bleed each month Mm -hmm. and that based on its 28-day textbook algorithm, which we, of course, know not actually that many women have that 28-day cycle, uh, the app is then telling them, you know, when they ovulate, which in my uh, experience is often up to a week out. So if you just think about that, um, and I had a, have a client actually just recently this month who um, had been doing exactly that. And then I got her to track using her basal body temperature. We did a few other things on her health as well because that needed improving, but we just started tracking via the app. I then shared screen in an appointment with her and showed her actually you're ovulating on day 19 not day 13 or 14, which is what your app was telling you. And then next cycle, she's pregnant. So I think as a sort of um, starting point, that information is really powerful because we just aren't, I know things are changing, but we're not taught that ever at school, which I think is really sad because a lot of women go through their entire life having really no idea about what changes are going on in their cycle and when they can and can't fall pregnant. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that really needs to be the starting point for them to start fostering some of that understanding. And to be honest, uh, unless you are working with a practitioner or you have some kind of interest in that side of things, a lot of that uh, is something women just are not learning because honestly that conversation happens multiple times a week where women don't understand what day one is, don't understand when they're ovulating. And I think that is obviously really key to falling pregnant. Yes. I find most women really don't know any of that information. And just like you said, a lot of clients coming to you aren't aware. And same with me, a lot of clients come to me and have no clue anything about their period. They just know that they bleed once a month and they don't know anything about any phases or how their mood changes. So for someone who, again, is just thinking, okay, I want to think about starting to get pregnant, just break it down super simple for us. What's day one? What are they looking for when ovulation hits? And just kind of the basics. I know it's hard to, usually in a one-on-one, we tailor it specific to that person and go through all the temperature and different things like that. But just as kind of a guideline for someone who's totally new to women's health and the menstrual cycle. So firstly, day one is the first day of your bleed. You might have spotting the day before. That's not counted as day one. It's the first day of your actual bleed is day one of your cycle, which a lot of women are shocked to know. (laughs) And uh, that menstrual phase, so the, the phase of bleeding is actually the start of your follicular phase, um, which, you know, if you had a 28-day cycle, 
which, you know, from the stats only around 10% of women do, but for ease's sake, we'll just say it's 28 days. That follicular phase lasts until around day 14. And then day 14 is ovulation. That's when your temperature goes up. And granted that day 14 can really be quite different depending on the length of your cycle. Typically, if you're ovulating regularly and it's happening happening at an appropriate time, if you count backwards 14 days from when you got your period, that's around when you ovulated. But that's, of course, not, um, not set in stone. Um, at ovulation, your temperature will go up, which is why um, I use temperature tracking with most of my clients. We're looking at hormone balance or um, preconception. And the reason that your temperature goes up is because, of course, when you ovulate, you release the egg and that follicle that released the egg reforms itself into something called the corpus luteum, which is a temporary gland. And that gland is responsible for secreting the majority of your progesterone. Now, progesterone uh, does uh, sort of boost your metabolism, stimulates the thyroid, which is then why that body temperature increases by a very small amount. So it's only 0.3 to 0.5 of a degree, something like that. And um, when you're looking at it on a chart, if you are tracking, you'll see it drop down, then spike up. Mm -hmm. And typically, we want it to stay sort of high uh, until you actually get your period. And that's indicating that that corpus luteum is nice and healthy. You are producing enough progesterone for the remainder of the cycle. Things that indicate otherwise might be spotting before you get your period, things like that. Um, but of course, that's probably more more complex things that we would go into with our one-on-one clients. Um, but essentially, that back half of the cycle after ovulation is called the luteal phase. And uh, other ways that you can start to conceptualize these different phases of your cycle is thinking about them in seasons, which I think a lot of people resonate with because it makes sense to how we feel. So sort of think about your menstrual phase as the winter phase when you just kind of want to be at home. You don't really want to talk to anyone. You just want to snuggle up on the couch and drink a tea or something. And then your ovulatory phase is more like the summer phase when you want to be social, you want to hang out with people uh, and uh, you have the most energy, that kind of thing. And so the seasons either side of that would, of course, be the summer and the spring. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. And so which app would you recommend for tracking symptoms and temperature? I like using Kindara. I don't know if Me you, too. Yes. you like that one. <laughs> yeah. The reason I like it is because they have a practitioner portal. And so I can send uh, my clients a request by email to start using the app. And it then means that I have access to all of their temperature data. And I find that really helpful because then in a consultation with them, I can go, great, for the next month, I want you to go away and track. And in our next appointment, we'll actually go through it. And, you know, when I mentioned that client uh, who thought she was ovulating much earlier than she actually Mm was, uh, those kinds of things we can do in clinic. And I think that really helps people because it does just sort of look meaningless for um, unless you know what you're looking for. It just sort of looks like your temperature is jumping around all over the place and it just looks, I, I always check my clients like, do you know when ovulation's happening now that we're looking at the chart? And most of them say, oh, I'm not really sure. And then once they know how to look for it, of course, 
they're fine to to continue doing that on their own. But yeah, that's definitely my favorite app for the practitioner side of things. Mm-hmm. I agree. I like seeing the graph and seeing mm. the temperature changes and just keeping track of of everything. So that's exactly what I do for myself as well. And so I definitely do like and recommend that app as well. And so continuing on with the question. So mm. for preconception care, so we talked about um, what to look for. So making sure period is nice and healthy, the perfect length, nice color, and then ovulation, we want to make sure we're one ovulating mm. and two knowing what to look for. Is there anything else that we should be paying attention to? So any oh, supplements, yeah. testing, um, <laughs> any prenatals, anything like that, any lifestyle things? There's, I mean, how long? Do, there's so many things, but you know, the key foundations, which I'll go into in more depth, but I think, you know, cleaning up your environment, step one, and a gentle detox, not in the sense of anything crazy. We'll go into what I mean by that. Um, organizing some preconception of bloods is really, really key. I think we're sort of flying blind without doing that. Uh, depending on the individual, this next step will depend how in depth you go, but certainly working on your gut health, because you know that, uh, by a vaginal birth or seeding, if you, if you do have a C-section that you will be passing on your microbiome to your baby. Mm -hmm. And that of course sets the scene for their future health. Um, certainly taking a quality prenatal and, um, we can talk about that more in depth, of course, optimizing nutrient density. There are some additional supplements I often look at, like a quality DHA for the baby's brain development, uh, and then sometimes a probiotic as well. And stress, reducing stress is really key, I think, as well, because um, that, of course, will affect the, the bub in utero. But coming back to the cleaning up the environment, uh, step one, I think, of course, it goes without saying taking a break from alcohol. Hopefully people are doing that at least three months out. Uh, depending on the person, I usually recommend caffeine as well. You know, the, the research around sort of the effect of uh, caffeine on the baby in pregnancy, it does show that it's you know, it's not great. Someone choose to continue drinking caffeine and that's, you know, it's shown that sort of one coffee a day isn't shown to really affect anything. But I often think if you're not adding anything, if you're not adding, then then why bother? You know, you can, I'm sure you can give up that cup of coffee for nine months. So if you're doing it during pregnancy, then it, I do think it's best to start preconception, particularly for our clients that are having two, three plus coffees a day, <laughs> um, which we sometimes see. Uh, and then I think other things we can think about, and again, this is going to be dependent on how far along that client is on their health journey, but beauty products are a big one. You know, there's so many chemicals in a lot of our commercial beauty and hygiene products. And unfortunately, it's a very, very poorly regulated industry, which I don't think many people realize that basically the ingredients that goes into those products are sort of uh, safe until proven guilty, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is really quite frightening when you start looking into that deeper. And I mean, there's no need to freak out about it because I think the stress of it's just as bad. So just taking small steps to when a product runs out, 
just replace it with something better. Um, We have a great website in Australia. I'm not sure if you have something similar um, over in Canada, but we have a website called Nourish Life and basically all of the products on there are quite well regulated. Uh, Another great app is uh, there's an app called Think Dirty Mm -hmm. and there's another one that the Environmental Working Group. Yes, yeah, that's the one that I look at. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. 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 So that's great. You can go and actually check a lot of your products on that app. You can also, if there's ingredients you're unsure about, which to be honest, if you're looking at the ingredient and you don't actually know what it is, look it up. And uh, that app gives you some more insight as to um, how it's been tested, what the safety is around that. And if you want to go out and replace everything straight away, you know, go ahead. But if you want to do it step by step, that's also fine because it can be quite overwhelming looking into that aspect of things. And um, other things are, you know, everyone's sort of budget I understand is quite different, but thinking about uh, organic foods as well, depending, you know, some of my clients are, of course, happy to switch to totally organic and if that's within their means that's of course completely fine for other people they're not there yet and that's okay Uh, I recommend again the environmental working group have a list that's called the clean 15 and the dirty dozen and the dirty dozen are um, fruits and vegetables that are sprayed um, really heavily And so potentially those you want to be looking at getting organic or another thing that I say is, you know, the vegetables that you get the most of or if you eat, if you know you're eating a punnet of blueberries every week, which we know berries are really highly sprayed, then potentially just look at getting a couple of those things organic and then the rest just do the best you can. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. And then (laughs) what do you recommend for a gentle detox? Yeah, so I think that comes back to cleaning up the environment. You know, um, generally sort of preconception, pregnancy, unless you have some serious work to do, which hopefully you're allowing 12 months to do that, we don't really want to be doing anything too crazy um, in the lead up to pregnancy because we wouldn't want to be liberating any toxins um, that you potentially could pass on to your baby then our body generally tends to protect the baby from anything like that so you know as I said taking alcohol out of the picture hopefully reducing caffeine um, if you are another thing to mention is you know if you are someone that gets any injectables um, certainly not doing that um, that would be part of the gentle detox And as much as you can, avoiding those hormone-disrupting chemicals in the beauty products, um, the plastics. Another really easy thing to do is if you get takeaway coffee every day and it comes in a takeaway coffee cup with a plastic lid, um, trying to maybe buy a keep cup that doesn't have a plastic lid that's made from glass or ceramic or something like that so that you're not constantly getting that BPA in the lid every day. Um, And, of course, that aspect of things is a really big rabbit hole to go down, but I'd say those are the basics that women can start with. Mm-hmm. There's a whole big deep dive that you could go into, especially with plastics, like all your Tupperware containers, your even yes. I, like your shower liner, if that's plastic, like the things you don't really think about unless you're consciously aware day by day, like you said, the, the coffee takeaway cup. And um, something else too, because I 
totally agree with you with the alcohol, coffee, something else as well is filtered water. Mm. I find it super, super important to make sure that you're drinking nice filtered water versus tap water. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Mm -hmm. And then, okay. So we got environmental detox and then for blood work, what would you recommend? Oh, yes. Well, I really like to get a whole suite of bloods done. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, often if you were to just go and, and ask for sort of the standard blood tests, uh, and told your doctor that you were trying, uh, for pregnancy, you wouldn't really get much, um, in the way of tests. Now, I also think that as a practitioner, it's really helpful for us when we do have as much information as possible, because most often your bloods tell a story. And when we start to fit them things together, we can see common themes, you know, particularly if we think about where certain nutrients are absorbed in the GI tract, uh, we can start to piece things together, particularly with any symptoms that might be ongoing. Um, But certainly we want to look at um, folate, of course, because we know that's really important for preventing um, neural tube defects. We want to look at homocysteine and B12 because that gives us an understanding of how well methylation is going for you, which is a huge topic in of itself. Uh, We want to look at iron studies because we know that, you know, iron studies is a really uh, interesting topic because we know that by trimester three, only around 20% of women actually have adequate iron stores. And so a lot of women are ending up getting iron infusions at trimester three or being prescribed really high dose iron. I, I'm not sure if it's the same sort of standard of care in Canada, but certainly in Australia, um, women are prescribed sort of over 100 milligrams of iron. And um, there are a few issues with that. I think firstly on the iron infusions, they're not without their their risks. Mm-hmm. And there is also question as to, yes, it might elevate your iron stores on the blood test, your ferritin levels. However, then we're sort of, there's question marks around the delivery of that to the baby. So whether it's actually counterproductive, I know some women certainly do need IV iron. um, But I think, you know, if we're organizing iron studies at least three months out, we can hopefully avoid a lot of that. Uh, And the high dose iron supplementation that is prescribed does usually cause significant GI distress. So a lot of women will get constipation, they'll get bloating, they'll get distension. uh, And there's a few reasons for that, mainly because of how iron is actually metabolized in the body. We're not equipped to uh, absorb that much iron. And so what's left over, the residual is often trapped in that GI wall, causing inflammation, causing that constipation, oxidation. Uh, and, and so, yeah, there, there are a few issues with that. I think if you can avoid getting into that, um, sort of avoid going down that path um, due to prop- with proper preparation, that's certainly ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like to get vitamin D, uh, urinary iodine, zinc and a full thyroid panel I think is absolutely key and I know uh, certainly in Australia the full thyroid panel 
Um, of course, we're looking at not just TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone. We're wanting to get um, T4, T3, usually reverse T3, and really important is your thyroid antibodies. Mm-hmm. So that if they're elevated gives us an indication that potentially there's a little bit of autoimmunity going on depending on how elevated they are. Um, and this is really, really important information because as I said earlier, you can have th- elevated antibodies for up to 10 years before you'll ever show symptoms. And unfortunately, testing these antibodies is not part of our standard of care. And it really needs to be because so many women do go on to develop postpartum thyroiditis and it's horrible for them to have to manage that when potentially if they got these tests done early enough and did some work to try and resolve those antibodies and that would involve working with, you know, a integrative practitioner, a nutritionist, naturopath, someone that understands um, how to do this or how to start sort of trying to work on this, then you can potentially avoid a lot of that. And, and I think that's really key. And I also like to look at HbA1c and fasting insulin, um, largely due to uh, we have in Australia the oral glucose tolerance test. Do you have the, mm-hmm. something similar? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, <laughs> this is also another topic in of itself, but uh, the oral glucose tolerance test in Australia, it's 75 grams of glucose. Um, delivered in solution. So of course, no fats or carbohydrates, it's just straight sugar as a drink, um, which, you know, certainly I hope no one is ever drinking that outside (laughs) of having the oral glucose tolerance test. And so it is common for women to have um, false positives Mm -hmm. because if they haven't been drinking or haven't been consuming these really large amounts of carbohydrate or sugar, of course, they're going to have a big response to consuming naked carbohydrates with nothing else. That would be a very normal (laughs) uh, (laughs) physiological response. Uh, And the 75 grams uh, isn't really based on research. It's kind of just pulled out of nowhere. Uh, And, yeah, I just have a big problem with that. And also that, you know, women who do go on to develop gestational diabetes they didn't just develop diabetes in pregnancy. They had an issue with their blood sugar mm-hmm. well before that happened. And so I just think why are we not screening this earlier so that we can educate people around reducing their risk pre-pregnancy and certainly managing it during so that women don't go on to develop gestational diabetes? Mm-hmm. A hundred percent. You make all good points there. And I was going to ask about the thyroid panel. So I'm glad you brought that up that um, it's the same thing in Canada. Most doctors are so hesitant to test a full Mm. panel and they just test TSH. And like you said, TSH can look normal for about 10 years when your antibodies are telling a story, you could have gotten a diagnosis way earlier. And one of the number one symptoms of having low thyroid is being exhausted. And after you Mm. deliver a baby, you're already exhausted. So it's kind of like double the exhaustion. And I know a lot of women then have trouble caring for the baby. And so if we can get this diagnosed before, like we're talking about in preconception, then it's just 
a lot better that way. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, when the antibodies potentially aren't at that level that, you know, something like an autoimmune condition has come to really fruition, that they're elevated, but they're not necessarily at the point where we diagnose something like Graves or Hashimoto's. Mm-hmm. There's so much that can be done to reduce those if you have enough time. And I just think it's so it's devastating, to be honest, that this isn't part of our standard of care because we could really be capturing these women early on and potentially, you know, in a lot of cases, um, stopping it ever, ever coming to fruition, never really developing into um, an autoimmune thyroid condition, which is just... Yeah, very sad. So I think a lot of a lot of things need to change in that department. Mm-hmm. Completely agree. And then since we're still on the subject of talking about blood work, so you mentioned iron a couple times. Mm. So in order to prevent the really low iron, what would you recommend would be a couple food sources that can kind of keep iron levels up and then we can get more into supplementation and prenatals and and everything else to help support the body as well? For sure. So uh, it will depend on what your iron studies are like. So for example, uh, I like in preconception, if my client's um, ferritin is below um, 50, we use micrograms per litre, then I'm thinking, okay, we need to actually probably supplement now because we can look at improving your iron status preconception and in trimester one when we can actually really impact it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if it's above 50, then I'm thinking about just food sources, which would be um, I, um, I do recommend sticking to heme sources of iron. So that would be beef, lamb, um, even looking at including things like liver, uh, which is no, I know not everyone's cup of tea. So if you're not open to that, you know, you can, of course, get that in desiccated um, dried form inside a capsule because I know eating homemade pate <laughs> is certainly not for everyone and that's okay. We've um, got wonderful companies that have managed to put that into capsule form. But, yeah, that's really how I approach it is let's get the testing done first see where you're at. If you are below that 50, then let's look at food sources and supplementation. If you're above that 50, then perhaps we're just looking at food sources for now and we'll continue to monitor it. And then typically I recommend throughout pregnancy, making sure that we're getting your hemoglobin and full iron studies done around every eight weeks um, so that we can monitor those changes and reduce the risk of you needing any kind of interventions at that try three. And another interesting thing about this is, you know, coming back to the standard care, most women are tested for iron in Australia at trimester two, which is when your iron actually looks its worst because um, that's when hemodilution occurs. So basically increase in plasma volume means that your iron starts to look worse than it actually is because there's um, basically more on board in your body. And also that's when the baby's needs start to increase. And so, um, you, your, yeah, your iron studies tend to drop then. And so in Australia, we are only screening women when they look their worst iron-wise. Uh, and I just think, yeah, there's a real issue with that um, because we can be doing so much more in that preconception and even in try one um, mm-hmm. to reduce 
that. <laughs> Get a full, accurate picture. <laughs> yes, definitely. And then, so we'll touch on gut health uh, briefly, and then we'll talk Ooh. about prenatals and some supplements that you would recommend. And then we'll touch a little bit on stress as well. Amazing. So gut health, again, completely dependent on the person if they have very overt mm-hmm. gut symptoms. So if you're someone that is... Um, has ongoing constipation, diarrhea, bloating, reactive to foods, then I think you do fall into that category of wanting to start that preconception journey earlier because we know that working on your gut is going to take probably a bit longer than someone who doesn't have um, doesn't have those ongoing symptoms. And potentially with someone that falls into that category, we are going to want to look at some testing to understand what the root cause is, what your microbiome looks like. Uh, In Australia, we have uh, one test called Metabiome, which looks at that metagenomic sequencing. So looking at what metabolites your gut is producing. Uh, And then other things, we have the GI map, which I think is Mm -hmm. uh, you probably have as well. And depending on the presenting sort of clients uh you would use one or the other uh and 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 really start you know with that information I think we have so much more information to work with in order to develop a plan that might be you know around six months because otherwise you're flying blind a little bit and the way I often describe using this kind of testing to clients is you know if you're going to a new destination you put it into your Google Maps and you bring up a map to help you get there. And I think testing is a little bit like that. I mean, of course, it's never clear cut because there are so many variables in health and we are all so different. But I really think that by using appropriate testing, we have so much more data to inform the next steps, the next and best steps for you that essentially help you to get from having that constipation or diarrhea every day to hopefully having, you know, healthy bowel movements once or twice daily and having your gut in that really robust, um, healthy form because ultimately, like we mentioned earlier, you will pass that on to your baby and Mm -hmm. setting the scene for their future gut health, of course, will help to shape their immune system and really reduce any risk of um, your child developing things like, you know, eczema, allergies, rashes, that kind of thing. I think we really can't underestimate the importance of um, that healthy gut environment that we are going to be passing on. Mm-hmm. Perfect. You sum that up really well. I like the analogy that you used with the map <laughs> and kind of, you know, where are you going and getting to the root cause and, and figuring all that out. That's perfect. And then talking about supplements now and gut mm-hmm. health, would you recommend a probiotic? Just kind of, I know usually in a one-on-one session, we get really specific and really targeted for supplements, but for someone who just wants to kind of explore supplements a little bit, what are some general supplements that you'd recommend across the board? Yeah, so I, um, again, it completely depends, but in the sense if the person has good general health, they're just wanting to, you know, optimize or improve their gut health, um, we um, have, can't remember the name of it, I'll, um, I'll have to, it's escaped me, but um, there is a general probiotic. Um, it's called um, Ultra Flora Mother and Baby, 
Um, that one I'm typically recommending. You can continue taking it while you're breastfeeding and, of course, continuing to pass on um, those beneficial microbes um, via breast milk if you are breastfeeding. Um, I do also recommend taking a DHA supplement, so that's an omega supplement, um, because that's really important for uh, proper brain and spinal cord development. And then in choosing a quality prenatal, I think I'm not sure um, what the situation is in Canada. However, in Australia, we have a very popular supplement called Elevate, which is what a lot of women take. And um, there's, uh, there's a few issues around this. It, it is uh, using folic acid. So it comes back to that yeah folate folic acid conversation I'm sure you have something similar I there's a a brand name called Jameson that popped into my head right away it's kind of like you can go to your local drugstore and just pick it up it's super cheap and inexpensive and none of the vitamins are methylated which is what you're going to get into between the folic acid versus folate and why that's so important to make sure you're getting a quality supplement yeah yeah definitely so this is sort of the across-the-board supplement that's recommended to women uh, during preconception and pregnancy. And, you know, if you were to go to any GP, this is across the board. The supplement is just get on Elevate. And firstly, there's the folic acid uh, conversation, which we'll get into, but it actually contains 800 micrograms of folic acid. So it's double uh, what we actually need. So that's issue number one that I have with it (laughs) and the the main issue is yes that it contains something called folic acid now that's highly synthetic and poorly absorbed Mm -hmm. in many people we certainly need folate in pregnancy to prevent neural tube defects prevent things like um, tongue and lip ties and all of that kind of thing However, folate is something really different to folic acid. So folate is, of course, found in our green leafy vegetables, in things like liver, and it's B9, so certainly an essential nutrient. Folic acid, however, uh, is man-made, highly synthetic, and it's also in a lot of our fortified foods. So think things like bread, cereals, pastas, some muesli bars, um, you know, those energy drinks and things like that. And so another issue around this is that if you're falling into that category of someone who's not absorbing that very well and you are taking that prenatal, which is more than double the dose of what you need, and then on top of that, you're following a standard Australian diet and you're also eating a lot of those foods that are fortified with folate there starts to be a real issue with this. Mm -hmm. And there's an ongoing sort of body of evidence around this showing that the people who fall into that category of not absorbing folic acid very well, um, which, you know, the name would be that you you have potentially an MTHFR, you know, it's called mutation. I tend to call it variation because it's so common. I don't really think we can be calling it a mutation. It's more just a a variant gene and I think also when you talk to people about them having a mutation it comes across (laughs) quite uh harsh so Mm -hmm. I just call it a variant gene basically it means that you're not very efficient at converting folic acid into folate and therefore that folic acid is now building up in the blood there is a 
growing body of evidence showing that the symptoms associated with that increased risk of folic acid in the blood um, might be linked to ongoing miscarriage, which I think is just devastating really to think that um, not in all cases, of course, I think that would be um, a small subset, but certainly in a small subset of people are potentially contributing to that um, through our standard of care. When really the research has been updated, we have we have better supplements on the market that contain natural forms of folate. Um, we know better, but for some reason um, our standard of care is yet to catch up. And I know there's a big lag time in research. It's estimated that, you know, new research takes about 17 years to be um, filtered down and actually implemented uh, in healthcare. But I just have a real issue with that because people who are, um, then going on to, you know, experience things like miscarriage as a result, I think we just, we can do better than that. A hundred percent agree. That's a long time. 17 years is yeah. a long time to get the proper research through all the channels, but mm. I agree making sure that all your B vitamins are methylated so your body can actually use them and you can have a healthy, proper pregnancy and avoid any complications is you know, pretty easy to do if you're getting the right supplements. <laughs> so yeah, definitely the the folate versus folic acid is a good point to touch on. And yeah. then last but not least for preconception, and then we'll, mm. we'll touch on the postpartum care. So what would someone do for stress if they're, you know, that go, go, go hustle job, working hard, very stressed at work, mm. what could someone do to decrease some stress? Yes. So stress, I think, is it's a real tricky one because we all know that we need to be better at stress reduction or management, but it's probably the hardest thing to change because, you know, you can tell someone, look, that prenatal is not great. I think you should take this one instead, blah, blah, blah. That's a pretty easy thing to do. Great. I'll just buy it and start taking it every morning. I mean, yeah. it's not it's not really too hard to comply with. It's clean cut we can, it's tangible, can see it, feel it, do it. Mm -hmm. Stress is a little bit trickier because there's a lot of variables in it, including, you know, uh, sort of things like how our, how reactive and touchy our nervous system is, those sorts of things. Um, but I think the, something I've heard that, that sums it up quite nicely is, Think about in your life where all your loose ends are and then find a way to have less loose ends. And I know that's a very simplistic <laughs> explanation of it, but I think it's, um, yeah, a really nice summary. Some sort of um, therapies that I like to encourage my clients who fall into that category of probably needing to do a bit more work on their nervous system and their stress is things like acupuncture. I think that can be really helpful for women. Uh, even things like uh, kinesiology I like as well. Um, potentially there are people who can benefit from seeing a psychologist depending on the source of their stress and, and certainly um, what's, yeah, what's causing it, how severe it is, that kind of thing. Um, and other things I think that are really important, uh, coming back to what we said earlier, get your partner on board because, you know, you're making a baby. This is actually, you know, quite a big thing. Seeing what you can delegate, take off your plate. Um, when you are approaching trimester three, um, 
prepare really well because if you think about back to sort of traditional cultures, we would have had a team of women after birth who were taking care of us, taking care of the baby, all that kind of thing. Um, And we just don't have that today in our modern society. I know some people, of course, do have their family around them, but that doesn't happen for all of us. And so, you know, taking those additional steps to see what you can take off your plate. Can you maybe delegate some food preparation to people, freeze some meals, make sure that you are really prepared. Um, And certainly, I guess, coming back to more the preconception side of things, um, yeah, I think it just comes back to, okay, sit down with yourself, maybe with a pen and paper and literally write down all the things that are in your mind that are stressing you out. Be really, you have to be really honest with yourself because I think um, this might be a general generalization, but as women, I do think we tend to sort of push things down and do that. No, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I've got it all under control. Um, However, yeah, I think we need to be really honest about that and certainly seek help if, um, if we need to. Yeah, basically, I guess I just think, you know, get really honest with yourself, get a piece of paper out, write down all the things that are stressing you out. Is it work? Is it relationship, friends, all the things on your to-do list? And then how can you work on tying those up? And then also what can you do to um, certainly actually eliminate the stress, not just manage it, but what can actually be eliminated? And then what can you do to manage it? So that might be including things like acupuncture, it might be including things like massage, it might be including things like yoga, meditation, those sorts of things. But I think they're more management strategies rather than actually elimination. And so I think, you know, the two together are really important. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. I was listening to a psychologist on a podcast the other day, and she was talking about all those surface level things that you can do that really, really help. Like you mentioned exercise, even I don't know if you recommend EFT or something, mm. um, emotional freedom technique or tapping. And that really helps kind of manage the day to day. But sometimes we need to get to the root cause. And that's when you would see a practitioner who can really dig deep and and get to what's causing those loose ends and some of that stress. And I found that really helpful for her to explain it like that, like combining the two of them. So having all the surface level things that you do day to day for management, and then also really doing a deep dive and getting to the root issue. And I was like, hmm, that's so true. Kind of a, a combination of the two. Yeah, I think, and you know, we do that uh, as practitioners nutritionally as well. Sometimes we uh, look at correcting things, but we also look at what we can actually do in the meantime to ease someone's symptoms or ease someone's pain or that kind of thing. We look for those sort of more management type strategies to make someone's life a bit easier. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then I know people are curious because we got them up to this point for everything mm-hmm. prenatal and preconception. So now what would someone do to nourish themselves postpartum? What's something they can do to help to help cope with everything, nourish their body? Mm. I Preparation's really key, I believe. So that would be starting in that trimester three while you uh, aren't looking after a baby. Well, you've just got yourself to take care of. I think lots of looking at doing lots of slow cooked foods, soups, things that are easy to digest because if we think about what's happening, you know, fourth trimester, even after the fourth trimester really, your body's still recovering. It's been through 
something monumental. Uh, your hormones are changing, your adrenals are changing, um, your connective tissues trying to heal. And so opting for, you know, stews, slow cooked foods where any vegetables or meats are really easy for your body to break down and almost pre-digested. Mm-hmm. And I think stocking your freezer with that kind of thing before you have a baby to take care of is really key. And hopefully have, if you do have visitors visiting you, uh, then they're bringing you also some <laughs> nice foods and things. I think it's really important to have that support around you uh, and having those quick, easy meals to go for, maybe having some frozen snacks and things like that means that when things are going, if things are going pear-shaped in your day or it's stressful, you know, you don't have to think about um, about what you're eating. And this is something I come across often with my postpartum clients. I often, if I haven't had them from preconception right through and they're a new client, they might come to see me at 12 months or so postpartum and the common picture is that you know I'm adjusting to new mum life I have no time to take care of myself I've Mm -hmm. breastfed for 12 months and I feel so depleted I feel tired I feel like I have nothing to give and I don't feel myself anymore and I mean I know that is very multifactorial but for the women that are putting in that effort to take care of their health perhaps preconception and we know certainly a lot of women do that during pregnancy the same emphasis isn't put on postpartum I think we forget that we're actually particularly if we're breastfeeding we're still growing a baby it's just not in the womb anymore Mm-hmm. And it's so key that you are continuing to nourish yourself, keeping on top of your nutrient stores. And I think to make that easy, because we also need to factor in the amount of time that you have, um, preparation is just absolutely paramount so that you have things that you can whip together or just heat up that are going to take five minutes going to be easier for you to digest that you're not eating sort of lots of raw vegetables or you know or that you're not just living off toast which is another (laughs) sort of common thing which I totally understand because if you you don't want to spend half an hour you don't have half an hour to prepare a meal that's going to be anything you know nourishing or worth eating and so unfortunately of women do end up living off toast which I understand but then there's the flow and effect that that has if it's happening all the time is um, unfortunately low energy levels feeling fatigued not feeling yourself um, because you are taking care of a small human (laughs) exactly yeah toast is convenient but if you could prepare all those nourishing foods I mean yeah, a lot of new moms would probably struggle to just stand over a stove and and make a soup from scratch, you know, super nourishing soup from scratch. That'll take an hour, a half an hour. That just sounds like way too much work for a new mom. And toast is convenient and takes a minute <laughs> and you don't yes, really have definitely. to do anything else. So I like that you mentioned preparing for all that. And you mentioned that the adrenals change after giving birth. And so what are some common struggles that a lot of new moms would struggle with? Yeah, I think it comes back to taking care of themselves properly in that 
postpartum phase because they're so focused understandably on loving their new baby, taking care of their new baby, and also probably adjusting to being a parent, taking care of that. You know, it's quite stressful because especially if it's your first child, you're wondering, God, am I actually even doing this right? Am I doing a good job? Am I I doing it terribly? Um, Maybe you're a little more relaxed about that with your second child. But uh, I think the struggles women face are really around taking care of themselves so that they are then able to be the best parent, um, still be a present partner or, or wife or what have you, um, and and still feel themselves, I think, as well, is a really big thing because uh, I think a lot of women struggle, um, you know, with things like identity and energy and all of that kind of feeds into that same holistic picture of often being a bit lost, which I guess can feed into postnatal anxiety and postnatal depression, that kind of thing. Hmm. So taking care of yourself. So what would someone do to kind of set some time aside to nourish themselves and take care of themselves while they're taking care of their baby? Mm. I think the common thread, you know, I guess we've sort of already touched on some of these things, but uh, certainly if, if you have that available, asking, you know, your partner or husband maybe on a weekend if they're working, is there a couple of hours where they can take care of the baby so that you can just have some time for yourself because mm-hmm. a lot of women aren't getting time for themselves in um, that postpartum period. And, of course, that's probably also going to depend on how far into the postpartum period you are because in those initial phases you probably wouldn't have that desire anyway to have um, or might not have that desire anyway to have that alone time but certainly as as time goes on I think that's important and you know the other thing is when the baby is sleeping that's a time for you to have some time to yourself and not necessarily I mean sometimes if you're feeling up to it it might be fine but not necessarily like cleaning the house and doing additional jobs and chores and that kind of thing because Mm -hmm. um that's sort of your rest time, your time to recoup, recover. And if you need to have a nap, if you need to have a sleep, like do that. Don't, um, don't hold back for the daytime nap. I think we've got to bring that back. (laughs) The body just went through a huge trauma of however long the labor was. And sometimes it goes into multiple days and, yeah, I think that's something that not a lot of people consider is that it's a big trauma to the body and a big change. So we need to be sleeping and doing the sits baths and all sorts of things to nourish the body along with nutrition is that self-care piece and the rest and mm-hmm. taking it easy on the body. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And I want to be mindful of your time. So I'll just ask you a couple more questions. For sure. So is there anything that we didn't get to touch on today that you wanted to mention for any women who are listening and are interested in the preconception and postpartum care? Uh, I think firstly, just, you know, if I always want to say, if you're listening to this and you've had kids and you haven't done any of that, it's okay. Like be kind to yourself. It's all right. There's no need to feel guilty about it. We all do the best that we can with the information that we have at the time. Um, But certainly I think if you have that time, 
uh, available to put in some of that yard work for preconception care, I think it's amazing to be able to do that, to think that, wow, we can actually really change some of our potentially pregnancy and, and postpartum outcomes by doing, I mean, it's relative, it's, you know, it's, there's still a lot of steps, but it's, it's relatively simple in most cases. It's not, um, not huge drastic changes. And the other thing that I think is really exciting about taking a dive into this kind of thing with a practitioner is that in doing these changes, in adopting these new dietary and lifestyle habits, you are by nature going to be really improving the health of your family going forward into the future because, um, you know, you'll carry forth these habits, these dietary lifestyle changes. And certainly with that information that you have, I think that it's really exciting that you'll be able to share that with your family and certainly improve all of their health outcomes going forward and and certainly improve their long-term health, which I think brings it full circle that it's not really just about preconception and pregnancy. It's really about that longevity piece and, and being able to bring that uh, bring those things that you've learned, those changes that you've made um, back into the family. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. You ended it on a wonderful note there. <laughs> and for anyone who wants to connect with you, where can they find you? How can they get in touch with you if they're interested in working with you for any preconception or postpartum care? Sure. So I'm most active on Instagram and my handle there's uh, Celine Douglas underscore nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, my website is just my name, so selendouglas.com, or you can certainly contact me via email if you'd like to, which is hello at selendouglas.com. Perfect. I'll put all those in the description box below so everyone can get in touch with you. And I just want to acknowledge you and say thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been so lovely chatting with you and you're so knowledgeable in the women's health industry. So I just wanted to thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge with everyone. Thanks so much for having me. I've, um, I love talking about anything women's health. So I've really loved this conversation and, you know, I hope to anyone listening that you learned something, got something out of it, um, and enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Holistic Health Chats. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you could leave me a rating and review in iTunes, as this allows me to help more women just like you. Holistic Health Chats is not intended to replace medical advice, so please consult with your practitioner before making any changes to your current health. If you are ready to take your health to the next level and would like some personalized support, the next step is booking in for a complimentary health chat. Please head to selendouglas.com forward slash book for more information.